Hello everyone, welcome back to my channel, Equipped for the Day. Today we're continuing in the book of Judges. I will be sharing my notes on Judges 3. The title for this uh, episode is called The Thorns That Bind Us. So this uh, central thought that I have is how God uses shared troubles and experiences to sanctify us and to form strong bonds with Him and with others in Christ. So here we um, remember from the last episode that in Judges 1 and 2, the Israelites were called to drive out all the nations around them, but they had failed to do so. And the context continuing into Judges chapter 3 is that God left those nations to teach the new generation about warfare. So let's go ahead and get into the reading of Judges 3. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians, and the Hivites who live on Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal, Hermon, as far as Lebohamath. They were for the testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Parasites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Othniel, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel when he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Kishan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Kishan Rishathim. So the land had rest for forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Ehud And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. Because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord, he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, eighteen years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. 
Now Eglon was a very fat man, and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, Surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he stood, but when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the forts of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for, four, for 80 years. Shemgar. After him was Shemgar the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. So let's briefly see what happened in this chapter. So here we read about the first three judges that God sent to save Israel. The first judge was Otniel, second judge with Ehud, saved them from Eglon and Moab. This was also a very interesting story in itself where Ehud uh, was a left-handed man and he used that to catch King Eglon off guard and killed him and delivered the Israelites. And then the third judge was Shamgar. More than just the details of how each of the judge delivered the Israelites from the hands of their enemies, the main point is really how God uses troubles and uses our enemies to sanctify his people. What the enemy meant for evil, God can use for our good, our growth, and for, for his glory. Now let's see how that happened as we study this story. So God used the troubles that the Israelites were going through to achieve a variety of different purposes. As God had left these nations around them for the purpose of teaching this new generation about warfare and testing whether they would keep the commands of the Lord their God as was given through Moses, God used this all as a part of their sanctification process, keeping them set apart, setting them apart to be holy for his holy purposes. For us as believers today, we also need to allow God to test us if God sees that we need to be tested 
as part of our sanctification process. He even uses things that aren't of him to test us. He uses things that are evil even to test us because he can redeem even those things, use those things that are not of him to test us for our good and for his glory. Now, in this case of the Israelites, imagine if God had intervened and had completely destroyed their enemies. This new generation of Israelites would have never learned what it meant to be set apart for a holy purpose. As I was studying this chapter, the word sanctification really stood out to me. The word sanctification really came to my mind. So I really wanted to study a little bit more about what this word means. So I went to Bible Study Tools. I'll put the link below. BibleStudyTools.com defines the process of sanctification as the state of proper functioning. I'll put the link down below so you can read along as well. It's a quite it's it's quite a long article, but I'm just going to read this part to you. The generic meaning of sanctification is the state of proper functioning. To sanctify someone or something is to set that person or thing apart for the use intended by its designer. A pen is sanctified when used to write. Eyeglasses are sanctified when used to improve sight. In the theological sense, things are sanctified when they are used for the purpose God intends. A human being is sanctified, therefore, when he or she lives according to God's design and purpose. Now that we are in Christ, this sanctification process still needs to happen. We have been indeed fully redeemed and reconciled to our Father God, but at right now, while we're still on earth, we are still not fully sanctified. That full sanctification will happen at the final resurrection of the saints. So when a group of people go through crisis together, and especially when a group of people go through trauma together, that creates very strong bonds. And the purpose of leaving the nations around the Israelites was to ultimately bind the Israelites together in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Bible Study Tool says, God calls specific people at specific times to be sanctified for a particular role in his redemptive program. God uses all people for his purposes, even those who defy him. For example, God used Pharaoh even though he did not let Israel go. God also used Cyrus, a pagan ruler, to discipline Israel. The scripture, however, is largely the story of how God wants to use willing vessels. He set apart some to be kings, priests, and prophets. God sanctified Jeremiah even before his birth for his prophetic ministry. The Holy Spirit set apart Paul and Barnabas for missionary service from among the gathered church. Every believer has a calling or vocation based on gifting. Just as each Israel had a role in the corporate life under the Old Covenant, so the church functions by the ministry of gifted and called individuals. Each one has a gift. The prominence of ministry will vary from person to person. 
yet each sanctifies his or her calling through faithfulness. And this process of sanctification involves God using shared troubles and experiences to form strong bonds with him and with others in Christ. So when a group of people go through crisis together, and especially when a group of people go through trauma together, that creates very strong bonds. And the purpose of leading the nations around the Israelites was to ultimately bind the Israelites together in unity to be against their enemies through this shared problem. Um, there, was, there was even a study by the Norwegian University of Science and Technology about the value of shared experiences. They discovered that going through crisis causes us to release greater amounts of oxytocin. This is a brain chemical that makes us feel good, makes us feel connected and have a concern for others. It is a protective response against outside forces. So there is growth after the trauma. There is post-traumatic growth, if you will, for us to grow together, stretch together, and learn together. This process of sanctification involves us recalibrating how we see troubles that come our way as a training ground. We can see challenging people and challenging circumstances as our training ground to fight together in community. You don't have to fight alone. The idea is to invite others into the battle with you. As we saw in Judges 1, Judah invited other tribes within the Israelite community to join together to fight their enemies. So don't battle alone and don't hesitate to call on others for help. We know that the war, the ultimate war against sin and death has been won by our Lord Jesus Christ, but we still have battles daily that we must fight. And the expected outcome from those battles is to be progressively stronger in our faith. So share your struggles together in community. Don't fight alone so we can grow together and get stronger together and be sanctified together as a body of Christ. The process of sanctification can be painful. It usually is painful, but this pain gives us an opportunity to boast in our weakness and therefore experience God's power. We need to call God, we need to call out to God to rescue us and comfort us in our weakness. How do you respond to difficult circumstances? Do you hesitate to call to God? Sometimes we may be too prideful that we'd rather go through this pain alone than even tell God or share with other people because we think we'll figure it out. We think we're strong enough. We think we can do this by ourselves. And depending on the reason of how you've gotten to that trouble in the first place, in the end, we can still call out to God. We see that in Judges 3, the Israelites got in trouble because they were disobedient, right? From Judges 1 and 2 we, and now 3, we see that they were in trouble. They cried out to God because they were in trouble because it was their doing. They were disobedient. It was their responsibility to drive out the nations around them, but they failed. And because of their disobedience, they got into trouble. Before God sent Othniel to deliver the Israelites, the people served Cushan and Rishathim for eight years, and then they finally called out to the Lord. And then we come to Ehud before God delivered them using Ehud, 
They were under the king of Moab for 18 years before they cried out to the Lord. So it took them a long time to realize that, yes, we can call out to the Lord. So here we see that even though they were in trouble because of their own doing, God still rescued them because God is so good and so compassionate. It took the Israelites a long time before they decided to finally call out to God and then God sent a judge to rescue them. But now let's think about what if they never called out to God? Would God still have rescued them? Will God still rescue us from our troubles if we don't call out to him? Well, oftentimes God will allow us to get to the end of ourselves first before he intervenes. He allows us to get to the end of ourselves first to almost let us prove to ourselves that there's nothing more we can do to help ourselves. In my experience, before I came to Christ, I pretty much got to the end of myself and tried so many things before realizing that Jesus really is the one true God. And an example of my father, who was a self-made man, he was a very proud man, a successful man. He was very proud in what he could accomplish. His life anthem was my way. He wanted to do things his way. He knew what was best for him or he thought. But by the grace of God, he accepted Jesus on his deathbed when there was nothing more he could do to help himself, to cure himself from his sickness. So can God intervene even if we don't call out to him? I think he can because God is good and compassionate even when we're being mo the most stubborn and prideful. And I believe that he does actually intervene in ways we don't know when we don't even call out to him. He does intervene in ways we don't see. But in any case, what I do know for sure is that God gives us a promise. God promises that if we do cry out to him, if we do call out to God, he promises that he will indeed rescue us. Psalm 34 talks so much about about God's rescue of his people. Verse 4 says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Verse 17 says, The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. So if we know that God's promise is sure and God is good to fulfill his promises, if we know that, then why wouldn't we call out to God for him to help us? It is certain that God will rescue us either immediately or eventually. There are some thorns that God does leave on in our side to grow us and to sanctify us and we may not be immediately delivered from these thorns. But what is God's promise in that case if he leaves that thorn in your side? His promise is that his grace is sufficient for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 10 says, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, 
so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. If we have the temptation to be prideful, as Paul here had confessed in the verses I just read, God will leave that thorn in our side for us, so that we'll always need Him and so that we will boast in our weakness and so we can experience His power even in our weakness. You may think that it's cruel to keep someone in pain so they would always need you. It sounds a little sadistic, like giving someone a disease so they would need you for the antidote. Now, we see that happening in the world, this this manipulation of giving somebody a sickness and providing the antidote for it, we see that happening in the world. And, and that is cruel in that sense. But that's not the right way to see the kind of thorn that Paul refers to. That's not the right way to see God. See, this thorn that Paul is talking about is used as a protective measure for us. The provision of this thorn keeps pride away. The thorn, that we meet, the thorn that we may need to learn to live with is actually less harmful than pride. That thorn is actually less harmful than any pride that will be sown in our hearts if we don't have that thorn. God cannot work with us, in us, or through us if our hearts are prideful. And if we see it that way, then wouldn't we rather have this thorn, trusting that His grace is sufficient, rather than living a life of pride totally cut off from god and totally unusable by god what do you think would you rather sustain some pain knowing that god's grace is with you through it or live in pride and deceive yourself that you don't need god so the benefits of experiencing physical and spiritual warfare in our lives today as disciples is one, to actively and continuously be sanctified. Two, to submit and to be totally dependent on God. And three, to experience God's victory in our weakness. And four, to strengthen the bonds that we have with other believers. God allows us to be tested. He even uses things that are not of Him to test us. If He completely intervenes and takes away all our thorns, we may end up on this path of pride and never experience God's power in our weakness and humility. We also need to recognize though and give thanks that God is so good not to give us trials all the time. We do, don't we, have lots of cycles of peace and comfort and our response should be gratefulness when things are going well. And when things start getting difficult, our responses should be gratefulness still. And remember that God is with us in this trial and that this trial will serve the purpose of growing us more in faith and even, even building tighter bonds in our community of faith. Let us ask God that we would not waste the opportunity in troubled times to bond with Him to know him more and to bond with those around us who are going through the same things. If you've not yet accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you will not have this opportunity to be sanctified in him. 
you will not be able to go through this process of sanctification to fully fulfill the divine design that God has for your life. Sure, we can all learn from our mistakes, even if you're not a Christian, we can learn from difficulties and challenges in life, but those lessons of growth will in the end be meaningless if it's not connected to Christ, if it's not connected to that divine purpose that God has for you as His child. So I'd like to extend this invitation to you today to come into the family of God, realizing that you do not have to fight your battles against your spiritual enemies alone. You do not have to fight the battle of sin alone. You can give it up to Jesus because at the cross, he crucified sin and death. And when you come in humility, coming to him, declaring that you need him as your Lord and your savior to clean away your sins that you want a new life, you want to be created brand new, he will fully accept you with his embrace, he will wel welcome you into his family, and you will begin this process of sanctification, of growing closer and closer to, to the divine purpose that he has for you in this life and beyond. I pray that you will come to know the Lord Jesus as your Lord and your Savior and your friend and that he will be able to comfort you and help you and rescue you through all your troubles. Thank you for watching. I look forward to coming back again for Judges 4, sharing my notes about the judge named Deborah in the next video.